0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to 3CR's Radioactive Show, produced at my home on unceded Wurundjeri lands. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders, past and present, and welcome all First Nations people listening today. This land always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. The Radioactive Show is distributed across these stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network, brought to you with the financial support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. My name is AC. On today's show, I'm sharing the fourth session of ICANN's Ban School, this time featuring Ray Archison, Director of Reaching Critical Will, the disarmament program of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, or WILPF, and Scott Ludlam, former Green Senator. They will both be speaking about their recently published books. Ray's book is called Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, and Scott's book is called "Full Circle." First, we hear from Ray Atchison.
2: Um, so I'm Ray. I think most of you probably know me, but I'm director of Reaching Critical Will, which is the disarmament program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is the oldest feminist. Peace Organization in the World, founded in 1915, with chapters um, and sections all over the world, including, of course, a very vibrant section in Australia. Um, And so we have a very storied history that I won't go into today, but our work on banning nuclear weapons has been part of Wilt's history um, and really uh, a Sort of a continuation of the work that that women started in 1915, and uh, Wilp was also Wilp. Women were involved in founding ICANN, of course. We have uh, Flick Ruby and Timothy Hawkins on the call, and many others were involved in that effort. And so there's also lots and lots of connections between Wilp and ICANN. And the reason that I wrote this book, banning the bomb, smashing the patriarchy, was to really give. Uh, the feminist perspective from Wilp Van I can on the ban process. I wanted to tell a very particular story that's often overlooked and that will be written out of history, unless we uh, ensure that it's included. Anti-nuclear organizing, of course, has a very long and rich uh, feminist uh, angle to it. Women have always been at the forefront of anti-nuclear organizing. And I just want to give a shout out to all of the, um, events on this week to mark uh, the Greenham Common um, efforts by women in the UK and around the world to get um, nuclear missiles out. And I think Dimity is involved in some of those events, and I'm sure others on the call are as well. So um, that's another example of feminist work for nuclear disarmament in the past. And I also just really want to highlight In this part of my reading that I'm going to do, but also throughout our discussion, the importance of intersectional feminism, recognizing not just gendered impacts or the way that gendered norms and structures affect nuclear discourse and our attempts to disarm, but also how the colonial, imperial and racist histories and current realities of nuclear weapons are all bound up with gender and with the structural obstacles that we face uh, in nuclear disarmament. And this analysis was really at the foreground of our advocacy for a ban, both by activists, of course, with ICANN, but also by a lot of the states that were involved um, who really saw this as a moment for them to stand up to the colonial powers and to those who wield massive violence in order to get their way in international relations. So this was reflected in the negotiations of the treaty, um, in the participation of who was in the room from ICANN's side, but also from the state's side. And the importance then in learning from other social justice movements, making sure that we're always foregrounding lived reality and challenging long-held narratives about why the world is the way it is because we know that we're told all the time we can't change anything this is just how it is and how untrue that is and the band process really shows us a good example so i'm going to do a brief reading from an early chapter in the book um and since the book Uh, involves the word patriarchy. I'm going to unpack that just a little bit before I go into the reading. Um, When I'm talking about patriarchy, and when feminists talk about patriarchy, we're not necessarily specifically talking about men and enforcing a dichotomy between men and women. But what we're talking about is constructions of masculinity, of what it is that we're taught, all of us, uh, what it means to be a real man, how these ideals are imposed upon all of us, and how this This binary between men and women, which is entirely constructed, enforces this idea of strong men who communicate through violence and passive women in need of protection. And there's no other real options for any of us to exist in this world unless we fall into one of those two categories. So I just wanted to put that out before I start the reading. As much feminist scholarship explains, social constructions of gender ascribe contrasting characteristics to masculinity and femininity that are seen as mutually exclusive and in which the masculine attribution is valued more highly than the feminine. And Flick Ruby, again, who I mentioned earlier, is on the call. Um, These are footnotes to some of her work. So if you read the book, you can get all the sources. Descriptors like strong and rational, serious and truthful tend to be associated with masculinity, while descriptors like weak and irrational and emotional and imaginary tend to be associated with femininity. So one of the tactics that was used by representatives of nuclear armed states to undermine the credibility of those who seek a ban on nuclear weapons was to assert that they didn't really understand international security and to accuse them of being, quote, emotional about nuclear weapons. When things like this were said in the conference room, I was reminded of a story that Carol Cohn relayed in an article in the 90s. She explains that a white male physicist working on modeling nuclear counterforce attacks exclaimed to a group of other white male physicists about the cavalier way that they were talking about civilian casualties. Only 30 million, he burst out. Only 30 million human beings killed instantly the room went silent. He later confessed to Carol, nobody said a word. They didn't even look at me. It was awful. I felt like a woman. This association about caring about the murder of 30 million people with being a woman is all about patriarchal gender norms. It's about seeing that position and seeing women as being weak and about caring about the wrong things. Letting your emotions get the better of you, focusing on human beings when you should be focused on strategy and statesmanship. In this perspective, caring about the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons is feminized, it's weak, and it's not relevant to the job that quote unquote real men have to do to protect their countries. Most of the nuclear armed states asserted this very clearly and repeatedly in their opposition to banning nuclear weapons. Disarmament is thus constructed as a utopian vision of a world that can't exist because the argument goes that there will always be those who want to retain or develop the capacity to wield massive, unfathomable levels of violence over others. Therefore, the rational actors need to retain the weapons for protection against the irrational others. In this context, policy decisions are based on conceptions of power imbued with mistrust, Threat, fear and violence. Such policies do not allow for other types of international engagement or relationship between citizens and states. They dismiss alternatives as utopian and unrealistic. This is more than just an argument or a difference in opinion. This is an attempt to undermine and discredit the other's perspective in order to maintain power and privilege. This attempt to control reality, which is known as gaslighting in psychological terms, is as integral to patriarchy as it is to nuclear deterrence. When the majority of states and international activist organizations all say that nuclear weapons threaten us and must be eliminated, the nuclear armed states say that nuclear weapons, in their hands, of course, keep us all safe and they must retain them indefinitely. When it's pointed out that nuclear armed states haven't complied with their disarmament commitments, the representatives of these countries claim that they have. They've done everything that they possibly can, and now it's up to the rest of the world, particularly those countries without nuclear weapons, to create the conditions for any further disarmament efforts. So the book goes on and on with more examples from there of all of the gaslighting tactics, the victim blaming, um, the pulling the wool over the eyes, um, speaking the opposite of what is true. Um, But this idea that it's up to the rest of the world to create the conditions for disarmament really um, went to the heart, I think, of what states did with the ban treaty. Um, You know, fine, put the ball in our court. We're going to ban the bomb. That's what we're going to do with it. And these countries working with ICANN and with other international organizations like the ICRC, with survivors and other groups around the world, really created something from nothing over the objections of the most powerful, um, you know, measured in in their terms of power over their objections and over their um, attempts to quash this entire process. So Dave talked a lot about hope in his opening remarks, and I think that's incredibly important for the way that we look at the ban treaty and the way that we look at the path forward from here because, of course, we still have much work to do to abolish nuclear weapons, but the fact that we now have have this this. treaty, um, despite everything that they've tried to throw at us, should give all of us great hope for the future. Thank you.
1: That was Ray Atchison, director of Reaching Critical Will and author of the book Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR and distributed on the Community Radio Network. Next, we hear from former Green Senator Scott Ludlam, speaking about his new book, Full Circle.
3: Hey everyone, good morning and good evening if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, My name is Scott, I'm speaking to you from um, Duranganj country, Um, the Durangang people of the UN Nation on the south coast of New South Wales. I'm on a little bit of a sketchy satellite connection. So if it cracks up, I'll drop the video just so that you can at least hear me. Um, But I do want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from unceded ground and recognise not just the continuing custodianship of Aboriginal people in this part of the world and around the world, um, but their enduring Um, resistance to the nuclear industry out of which nuclear weapons come Um, and the reading that I'm going to do from the book recognises the the very profound and real implications of that resistance that have kept the rest of this society safe from this technology even if we don't all know it Um, this is a thing that I made with an enormous amount of help called Full Circle. It came out in May um, and it's in part a, a, a record of how social movements succeed or fail. So my background um, is not as a writer. Um, I spent um, nine years in the Australian Parliament. Before that, I was working on anti-nuclear campaigns, more or less full-time, and I'm fascinated by the dynamics by which social movements can succeed or can fade away, the crossover between organic grassroots movements and formal politics and institutional politics. ICANN is a really interesting example of that because it came from the grassroots, it came from the ground up, and then it ends up holding court in the United Nations General Assembly and pushing over a really important um, domino in the relationships between states. Um, there's a lot in the book about scale. Um, we're probably all familiar with this, this metaphor, this idea of the butterfly wings, of how small causes can have enormous consequences. We see that over and over again in movement, organising and in social movement. So I want to actually look at, well, what, what's that about? Apart from just a pretty metaphor, um, how, how can we be the butterfly that the, the wing beats stir up the storm? Um, how do we what can we learn from successful butterflies of past storms? Um, I discovered all this stuff with flick's help that sociologists and movement historians and theorists have written about how social movements are adaptive how the claims that they make on power structures lead to pushback when you have a win there 'll almost always be a reaction that 's going to push you back a couple of steps and You won't be able to succeed again by trying the thing that just succeeded we have to continually adapt and surprise and be creative and there's a surprising um surprisingly large literature of people who've kind of been fooling around and playing with that idea of adaptive campaigning and adaptive social movements about how we continually stay a step ahead um it's a more creative and and loving version of the idea of an arms race that we're in we're in a form of a of a loving arms race with extremely well armed and violent institutions um and so that that kind of draws in the sense of the importance of of creativity and experimentation so to get there there's a lot of systems theory where again i think there's some really valuable um disciplines and understandings of how um, dynamic systems in contention work, movement, history, sociology, lots of case studies. And one of them is a case study um, close to home of an organisation that's today called ANFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, which is one of the best examples I know of, of a collaboration of red, black and green that's gone on now. It had its 20th anniversary in 2017. um, That has been powerfully successful in bringing this, the stories, the organising culture the, and, and community structure of the oldest living societies on the planet and kind of hybridising those in a really interesting way with greeny environmentalism um, and more and, and more kind of city-based NGOs in a really productive and powerful partnership. So I'm going to read a couple of little snippets from an essay called Campfire um, that is relaying a little bit of the work of Anfa and all the things that it's taught me um is the signal okay or am i glitching and being annoying thumbs up okay okay that's good all right so this is an essay a little over halfway through called campfire i'm still not used to reading it still feels weird to be reading out of a book but okay here we go a crackling campfire in an old steel drum conversation and a laughter that will ebb and flow while the stars turn far above. The old people in camp chairs with mugs of tea holding not just the memory of the 20 years we're celebrating tonight but the whole history of this thing right back to the beginning. Tobacco passed hand to hand with story and laughter and loss. A couple of empty chairs imagining them occupied by the ones we miss from campfires past. This extended family is starting to lose track of how much harm and destruction it has seen off radioactive waste dumps domestic and international from the barclay to the flinders ranges persistent and increasingly shrill gambits for new fukushima's uranium mines from akarula to the gulf country to the goldfields. the background radiation to this whole story is the time the colonizers bombed them off their lands with actual nuclear weapons The commonwealth government with unlimited access to broadcast networks lawyers cops multinational mining corporations with 11 digit market capitalization footloose junior explorers awash with careless investors cash again and again the most powerful entities in the country have trespassed on these people's traditional lands seeking to poison and dump extract and destroy more often than the odds should favor they end up retreating in humiliation I would never, ever bet against these people. Dave Sweeney has spent 30 years working on these campaigns, 20 of them as the Australian Conservation Foundation's nuclear campaigns coordinator. I ask what he thinks the secret is, quote, there's a bit of craft, there's a bit of leverage, there's a bit of pressure, and there's a bit of magic, he observes, and things always look impossible just before
1: they become self-evident. That was Scott Ludlam speaking about his new book, Full Circle. Next up, Dimity Hawkins, one of the hosts of this band school session, asks about historical and nuclear amnesia.
0: Um, I have a question for you both, um, though. As a student of history myself, like I'm often surprised at the work that needs to go into um the uncovering of histories. And as a student of nuclear history in particular, I know that nuclear amnesia is really rife everywhere. It seems like state and military secrecy around these issues and the opaque records and the big money that's involved in nukes, as well as deliberate obfuscation, all are playing a part in that. And I think also that as activists, we're drawn into the immediacy of the work The rush of the action and the reaction, that sort of takes up so much of our time. And we rarely get the chance of reflection and capturing of our stories. So that's one of the reasons why these books have meant so much to me. They really capture our stories, our histories and her stories as well. Um, You mentioned this, Ray, right at the beginning when you said that we'd be written out of history if we didn't write these histories. And I think in your book, Scott, you talk about historical amnesia and you have a quote there from Milan uh, Kandira from Czechoslovakia, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. So how important, if you could just expand on that, how important was pushing back against our own nuclear and historical amnesia for you both in deciding to write these books? I
2: guess I'll go. <laughs> um, well, I think in addition to the to the broader collective amnesia, there's also our own amnesia that is, um, you know, really hard to contend with too. As this was a process that took place over ten years, and so um, it's difficult to capture everything. And so for that, you know, in the in the acknowledgements of my book, I I point out that this is one telling of the story. There are probably many, many tellings of this story. Um, but also I had the great fortune of um, Tim Wright from ICANN Australia, who's also on the call, going through very carefully through the first draft and pointing out, hey, what about this and what about that? And then things I'd just forgotten that had slipped my mind that got then inserted into later drafts. So that was absolutely crucial, having that collective memory of of what took place. And then more broadly, uh, it's it's always interesting to me Um, Some of these stories and approaches and analysis that uh, we incorporate into our, into our everyday advocacy within ICANN or within WILP or whatever group we're with, um, it becomes uh, reflexive to us and we stop, we tend to stop going into the details because we assume that other people have this shared knowledge and history Um, And then it's it's always striking to me when people say, oh, I've never thought of it that way before. I've never heard that before. I didn't know that piece of history. And so having other people that weren't really involved in the process also read the book um, and give those reflections was super important along the way. And it really highlighted to me again and again the importance of no matter how many times we think we've heard the story, we have to keep telling it. Otherwise, it will be completely written out. And. Um, I think that we can learn a lot uh, here from other um, social justice movements where things have been lost or uh, oral traditions and indigenous communities where things have been retained for much longer than in our written histories. So there's all sorts of different um, practices that we need to be playing with, I think, to make sure that the real history uh, is not uh, overwritten by those uh with the power of their pen
0: uh which is guided by their missiles basically so so true, so guided by their missiles uh Scott, what about you?
3: I wasn't sure if where where exactly that was going um, the I feel like i've had the um real good fortune as well of having directly heard testimony from hibakusha from people who have been um subjected to uh nuclear weapons attacks so um one of the one of the ican partners peace boat has a project called or zero project which is just dedicated to making sure that people can listen to the direct testimony of those who've been um, in a nuclear attack their purpose is so that such a thing never happens again and it occurred to me when I was um being told one of these stories on Peaceboat um, by Mr Miyake that this concept of collective species-wide memory is tremendously powerful I guess in two dimensions for the purpose of this conversation firstly that um there was a, a, quite a deliberate effort after the Second World War by the occupying government to just prevent word of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki from getting out. Um, so it was actually difficult to establish, and it took the work of the Hibakusha over three generations or four now to make sure that that story was told with integrity. Um, so there's some pieces in the book about that sense in which without collective memory we're just... Uh, we're completely unable to collectively defend ourselves against powerful institutions. And related to that, I guess, is that movement history gets erased in, in a process that's, that's um, you know, just as creepy that social change can be understood uh, as something that's handed down by benevolent elites. Or if we voted for the right politician, they will give us these freedoms. And that's not how social change is done, ever, anywhere, in any context. It's hard fought, and generally the people who who did the work do get written out of history. So, um, yeah, without that collective memory, we're helpless and we're significantly more powerless.
1: That was Scott Ludlam, former Green Senator, and before him, Ray Atchison, Director of Reaching Critical Will, both speaking about their recently published books. You'll find a link to both of their books on our website along with all our previous show podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. Thanks to the hosts, Dimity Hawkins and Dave Sweeney and ICANN Australia's director, Jim Romald for her organising work on band school. Go to icanw.org.au forward slash school for more information. That's it for today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show produced for 3CR at my home in lockdown in Narm, Melbourne, and broadcast across these stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. If you want to get in touch with us, please call the 3CR office on 03 9419 8377 or email radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free future.